Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, just as a review, just a reminder, the last uh, few weeks we've been looking at, focusing on verse 20, uh, specifically where Jesus said, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes through a series of areas where he's trying to step up the game of righteousness, if I could say it that way, raise the bar. And so as we come to this passage this morning, this is a heavy passage. I said last week's was heavy, this one is too. Um, and I want to just make this statement. Um, we're, we're going to be talking about the area of divorce because that's what's the, in the passage. Um, I'm really going to spend not a whole lot of time in Matthew chapter 5 because there's not a whole lot in there. But we're going to look at some other passages that deal with the area of divorce. And I want to make a couple disclaimers. First of all, the first thing is there is no way that we can exhaust the subject of divorce in one message. And so if you... If you uh, finish and, you're, and you say, well, I still have questions, um, feel free to come and talk to me. I'm not going to probably answer everyone's question. The second thing I, I do want to give as a disclaimer is I, I, I challenge you to listen through the whole message. Um, divorce is an area that has touched many people, and maybe it's something that's hard for you. I challenge you to listen and just see what God has for you as we listen to this topic. I'd like to read for you and you can follow along, if you will, in the passage there in Matthew. It says in verse 31, it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of, of Christ and the teaching in Scripture. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand not only this passage, but the topic of divorce that is so prevalent in our society today. Lord, I pray that you help us to have wisdom, help us to have grace and understanding as we deal with this. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Even though the subject of divorce is a controversial one and one that carries a lot of emotions, it's, it is not one of which the Bible is silent. Both the Old and New Testament have quite a bit and mention the subject on various occasions. And so putting all the pieces together in order to see the whole picture and establish a biblical foundation on which to stand is a difficult task. It's a hard one to understand. We live in a culture today that no longer believes in moral absolutes. We live in a culture today that uh, the moral foundation of our nation is crumbling. And along with the moral foundation of our nation crumbling, American homes are crumbling as well. At one time in our society, divorce was frowned upon. And it was almost unheard of in the Christian circle. But today, that's not the case. For many years, many year, churches could afford to just sweep the issue under the rug and not even talk about it because it didn't impact many people in churches and maybe even not a single person in a church. Now, I grew up in a time when uh, I do not know, in my home church of 400 people, I did not know one divorced person. That's not the same way today. I know it's impacted many of our homes here today. 
There's hardly a home in America today that has not been touched by divorce in one way or another. In fact, the United States is one of the top five leading nations in divorce. It's not a statistic we should be proud of, but it's one that's true. And so today we're forced to confront this issue. And when we do, we need to do it based on biblical correctness, not just on tradition. What does the Bible say? In order to have a proper understanding of this very complicated subject, we need to go back to the beginning. What does God say when he performed the very first marriage? And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19. And we'll see another time when Jesus was discussing this area of divorce and and how he handled it. And the first thing I want you to notice is I want you to begin looking at what is God's view of marriage. Because before we can look at what's God's view of divorce, we have to look at what's God's view of marriage. What did God think when he established marriage? In Matthew chapter 19, uh, we, we begin looking at the institution of marriage. And what was it that God said? On the screen there, I start in verse 4. But I, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at verse 3. It says, The Pharisees came up to him, came to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Among the Pharisees of Jesus' day, there was two different schools of thought on the issue of divorce. There was the conservative side that held the position that the only biblical grounds for divorce was marital infidelity. There was a liberal school that taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. And so that was a very prevalent attitude of the day. Divorce was not really that uncommon in Christ's time. Those who were coming to Jesus in verse 3, these Pharisees uh, were probably from the more liberal school. I believe that because I believe they were trying to trip up Christ. They were trying to get him to say something that they could use to discredit him. So instead of engaging them, they began asking a question about divorce. Instead of engaging them on the topic of divorce, he did something rather interesting. He took them back to the beginning. So we want to look back and and, and see a few things uh, first. If, If you could flip to the next one here. Uh, The first thing we see is in Genesis, when Jesus begins talking about it, Adam at this point has been created, Eve is not yet uh, in the picture, and it says, God looks down and it says something interesting there. It says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The essence of marriage we see in this passage is companionship and completeness. Marriage was created because Adam was all alone and God said that wasn't good you know as man as mankind we have a built-in need for companionship the primary purpose for God creating Eve was not to be Adam's helper but to be his companion notice if you will in that verse the phrase there he says a helper fit the word fit there means appropriate to Uh, And it gives us the idea that God said that he was going to make Adam a helper that was appropriate to his needs. See, a helper fit does not imply that she was, the wife is to be inferior to the husband or the wife is to be a servant to the husband. It was the idea that the wife is actually going to complete him and make him whole. That he has needs, and, and, and same thing could go the other way around, the wife. It's just mentioned here because the man was created first, and, and God says that they have needs that as they come together, they become complete. 
So God continues to teach on this subject, if you flip to the next one there. He says in in, in Genesis chapter 2, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And he begins to give this incredible thing. And if you, uh, we'll look there in a moment, but in Matthew, Jesus begins to teach this when the question came up about divorce. He says, uh, uh, and he, he starts to teach through this. And so with that uh, statement, I believe that we can look at some understanding of what marriage is based on this passage. That is, says there that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want to give you four laws of marriage. If you're keeping notes, uh, the notes, it's in your bulletin, you'll have these. And these are not original with me. These came from a book called Four Laws of Marriage. Very uh, creative name there. The first one I want to give you is the law of priority. The law of priority. In that passage it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. When God brought Adam and Eve together in the garden, He did so with the intent that their relationship would be more important than any other human relationship. If you're here today, your relationship with your spouse is the most important. I've said that before, and that is not to say that your relationship with your kids is not important, but your relationship to uh, your spouse is the most important relationship, human relationship. The word leave in that passage, it says, therefore shall a man leave, is, is the, could mean loosen or relinquish. So when God said to them, leave his father and mother, what he meant there was a man was to loosen his highest position of commitment uh, previously that was given to his parents in order to give that to his wife. He was to say, okay, I'm letting go, mom and dad. And then what does he say next? The second one is the law of pursuit. It goes on, he says, and he shall uh, leave, and it says, uh, in the King James, he says he shall cleave. In the ESV, it says he shall hold fast. The word there means to pursue with great energy and cling to something zealously. The idea is, uh, I'm, I'm letting go of mom and dad so I can pursue everything I can with my spouse and hold on to them and not let go of them and, and not give them up at all. It's pursuit. I'm going to go after that. The third law is the law of possession. It goes on, it says, and they shall be one flesh. They shall be one flesh. The law of possession states this, marriage is a complete union in which all things previously owned and managed individually are now owned and managed jointly. It's it's one Flesh. Now, we often think one flesh primarily refers to the sexual union, but that's not it. It's a completeness. It's a complete coming together as two and making one. That there's not an ownership in the sense of a, a slave owner, but there's an ownership in the sense of you become my part of who I am. I don't own my wife, but you know what? I am not what I should be without my wife. There's something about me that's incomplete. That's the way God intended it. That's what he said here. And the last one, if you'll click the screen there a couple times, the last one is the law of purity. It says at the end of that phrase, it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God intended marriage to be a, to- a place of total nakedness. What does that mean? That means physically, emotionally, spiritually. That there is, no, uh, there is nothing between you and your spouse. That there's no walls that have been built up. That there's this complete openness. 
without fear, without shame, without regret. That is until sin came into the picture. With the introduction of sin came shame. That is why when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened immediately? What is the first thing they did is they clothed themselves. Sin entered the picture and suddenly shame and the need to cover up and hide became prevalent. God's institution of marriage was to be this perfect union, this completeness, this oneness. Next thing I want to look at is uh, the importance of marriage. You'll flip to the next one there. We see uh, in Matthew chapter 19, if you look at Matthew chapter 19, after Jesus goes through and, and, and basically reiterates what we just read in Genesis, he says in Matthew chapter 19 in verse 6, it says this, So they are no longer two, but one. They're no longer two, but one. And then he, he say, goes on and he says, But what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The importance of marriage, though, if you notice in that passage, he says what God has joined together. Marriage is a spiritual matter. It's a, a covenant relationship. I love telling people, I love sitting down with, with couples that are about to get married and remind them of this. God created and instituted the first marriage. Not only that, if you study Scripture, one of the things that kind of I think is really neat is God was the one that gave away the first bride. Scripture tells us that God took Eve, and it says in Scripture, He brought Eve to her husband. And you get that picture of a father walking down the aisle, as we see in our traditional weddings today, and, and the father walking the bride down the aisle and handing them off to the, to the husband. And you think that's and, and the original father of the bride scenario was, was God Himself. God, it's a spiritual matter, and then he stands there and he presides over that. Today, the same is true. It's a covenant relationship that's entered when a man and woman stand before God and they vow to love, honor, and cherish one another as long as they both shall live. Many don't take this vow seriously, but it doesn't diminish its importance doesn't diminish the importance of the vows. And he says there in that passage what God has joined together. It's something God has done. And I want you to notice the next thing is the, uh, uh, the intention of marriage. And notice the end of that verse, it says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This is interesting because this was not in Genesis. This verse that we look at here is something that Jesus added. He said, okay, here's the, God established marriage and He established it for completeness, oneness, permanency. And then He said, what God has put together, let not man take apart. In God's original plan for marriage, there was no provision for divorce. The original intent, intent was one man for one woman for life. In fact, if you're in Matthew chapter 19, look down at verse 8. We'll get to this in a minute, but look down in verse 8. In verse 8 it says this, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What is he saying in that passage? God never intended for divorce. And why divorce? Where did it come from? Why does it happen? The answer to all those questions is simply sin. Sin is destructive, and with the rise of sin came the fall of marriage. 
sin is the cause of every divorce. You know, today there's something in the criminal, um, in, criminal in the law uh, branch that's called the uh, no-fault divorce. There is no such thing. When it comes to divorce, there is always fault because sin is at the heart of it. But that does not mean every divorce is sinful, and I want to get into that. If you notice, if you will, if you notice that that verse again, I want to point something out to you. It says in that passage, uh, let not man separate. It does not say that it cannot happen. It says, let not man separate. It does not say it's something that is impossible to do. It says, let not man separate. The meaning here is that no man has the right to dissolve what God has instituted or ordained to be permanent. It can be done, but if it is, it's done without God's approval. We can, we can say you know, that this is the case, but God is saying here, and Jesus is saying, you know what? God created it for permanency. Let not man tear it apart. Let's keep it together. Last thing I want to notice on here is the interruption of marriage. If you look at the passage I just read, he says there in that passage, uh, I read verse 8, read verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and uh, marries another commits adultery. As we've already said, God never intended for divorce to happen. He didn't want it. He didn't will it. But it happened. Divorce was not a command, rather a concession that he talks about. God never instituted divorce, although he did regulate it. In the law, it talks about divorce, but it's not a command. We'll look at that in a minute as well. It's something that God said, here is how you handle it when divorce does take place. So we looked at what is God's view of marriage. God's view of marriage is permanence. We get that. We, we can't see otherwise. Re- remember, in the New Testament, Paul comes along and says, hey, uh, husbands, love your wives. Why? Because you're a picture of how much Christ loves the church. Do we reflect that love when, uh, when we don't allow it to be permanent? Second thing we want to notice is God's view of divorce. How does God view divorce? There's, there's a verse in Malachi that I think makes it pretty clear. It says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. What do you think God thinks of divorce? God hates it. Two things I want to notice, though. Uh, the first one is, God did not plan it. God did not plan it. We have already seen that God never intended for divorce to occur. His plan was one man for one woman for one lifetime. Now, Jesus clearly stated that his response to his, the Pharisees in this by saying it was that way from the beginning. That's how God intended it for it to be. From the beginning, the intention was for marriage to be permanent union between man and a, a woman. Permanent. We see that. We see in the passage there that he says from the beginning, that's how God intended for it to be. But not only uh, do we see that God did not plan it, but we do see that God uh, did permit it. You look at Matthew chapter, and I want to note this passage here. We notice that Matthew chapter, um, sorry, it's going really slow today. There we go. Matthew chapter 19, he comes, and I want you see two words that I highlighted because I want to make a point there. The Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him this. 
They said, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Notice what Jesus says. Jesus changes the word, and I think Jesus changes the word for a reason. He says there, uh, he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. Notice that. But then notice what he said at the beginning of that. He said, why did, why did, why did God allow the certificate of divorce? He did because, he said, because of the what? The hardness of your heart. Because your heart was hard. And so that leads us to the next thing we want to talk about. What is a legitimate approach to divorce? How should we approach this topic? Some of you in here are divorced, and I get that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Some of you in here, and I don't maybe know the hearts, and maybe for you, some of you in here, you're, you're um, struggling with that, that thought of you know, wanting to divorce. Maybe some of you, it's, it's something that uh, you, you haven't really thought about much. We really need to look at what is some legitimate approach. And so what I want you to do is take your Bible and go to uh, 1 Samuel, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians. Don't know where I got Samuel. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I want to see what Paul begins to talk about when it's the area of divorce. In this uh, passage, we don't have time to look at the whole chapter, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul begins to address three people. First of all, he addresses single Christians, and he says, single Christians, hear, hear how, uh, how you should live. And then he begins to address married Christians. Okay, mar- if you're married, uh, here's what I want to say about, about that uh, uh, Christians that are married to another Christian. And then he gets into a a topic that I think is interesting, and we'll get into this one later. He begins talking about Christians married to non-Christians. And as he does this, I want to notice, uh, and I I have this up here for a reason, because I want to notice two phrases that I think a lot of times have been misread. If you notice in, in verse 10 there, it says, to the married I give this charge, and we'll talk about that charge in a minute, but he says this, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, when he begins talking about those that are Christians married to un- unbelievers, he says this, he says, to the rest they say, uh, and then he says, I, not the Lord. And many people have said, well, verse 12 is his opinion. It's not really scripture. And, and I don't believe that's the case. What I think is, what he's saying is, in verse 10, he's saying, uh, I want to give you this charge, this command. And he's saying, not I, because this is already something God has said previously. This is already something that, that Jesus talked about in Matthew and in other places. Uh, he says, so this is something you already know about. Then when he gets to verse 12, he says, okay, I want to share something that wasn't previously stated by Christ. So I, I don't believe it's just merely his opinion. Through the inspiration of Scripture, Paul shares this with us. And, and he gives to us some aspects that we need to remember when we talk about this. First of all, I want you to notice the, the exact command that is given. I want you to notice the exact command. You'll flip to the next one for me. There we go. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this, To the married I give this, this charge or this command. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. These words were not merely suggestions or simply good advice. Um, they're a command. Now, before we get into this, uh, some may ask, okay, it doesn't state here about unsaved people. You know, what if it's an unsaved to an unsaved? What, what does Scripture say about that? Well, Scripture says the same thing about that that it says about anything. 
Before you become a believer, and maybe you're here today and you're not a believer, before you become a believer, you, your life is dictated by the flesh. Your life is dictated by, uh, by your own desires. So it's not a shock to me when a person who's unsaved uh, does, does something wrong. Why? Because their life is led by uh, their flesh. And so because of that, uh, it's not a shock either when an unsaved person that's married to an unsaved person gets a divorce. And so it's not really addressed here because they're not dictated by the laws of Scripture. They're not guided by the conscience that is given to them and the Holy Spirit that's working in them. So just understand that. When we look at this passage, though, we're dealing with a, a believer that's married to a believer. And he says, Neither the Christian husband nor the Christian wife may divorce their spouse for any reason other than what was indicated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. No allowance is given for any other reason in this passage. I find it unbelievable the reasons that people will give. There's no allowance here given for incompatibility. You say, well, me and my spouse, we just don't fit. doesn't see that there. There's no allowance given for irreconcilable differences. Well, you know, we had this huge argument and we just can't get past it. We don't agree about how to raise children. We don't agree about this. It doesn't give that. There's no allowance for neglect of marital duties. You say, well, you know, my husband, he is just, oh man, he's just a horrible man. He's lazy, he doesn't provide for me, he doesn't meet, meet my needs. That might be true. doesn't give us that, that out. There's no allowance for loss of love, for financial concerns. You know, lawyers may recognize those, those as legitimate grounds, but God doesn't. But Paul goes on and states something interesting. He says, okay, here in this passage he says, you should not separate from your husband. But notice what he says. Uh, if it happens, and I think that this can go either way, husbands or wives, uh, if it happens, if they ignore the teaching of Scripture and, he di- and they divorce and she divorces her husband without biblical grounds, he says she has two options, scripturally. He says either she can remain unmarried or she can be reconciled to her husband. What was Paul after here? Paul is after something that I deal with every day when I do marriage counseling. Paul was after reconciliation. Paul was after the desire to see this, this uh, wife and this husband not, not try to figure out how to get out of their marriage, but how to try to figure out how to resolve the issues in their marriage. And Paul said, if, if you must, if you do divorce, okay, I want you to understand you have two options, either remain single or try to figure out how to reconcile. He's after reconciliation. Then Paul gets into a second aspect we want to look at. Not only does he give us an exact command, but he gives us the exceptional couple, or a couple that is outside of the norm. Look again, if you will, at, at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And look, if you will, at uh, verse 12. It says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if a, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever he cons- and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Again, Paul is, is not offering here his mere opinion. He's giving uh, a scenario. See, the group that Paul was talking to, remember, he's, he's writing a letter to mostly new believers. 
I mean, these are people who have just heard about the gospel, many of them for the first time, and many of them are turning to Christ. And so they find themselves in a situation that's, that's different than the previous verses. What, what happened was, is the gospel was being spread for the first time. And as Paul was going out and was preaching, and people were turning their lives over to Christ, what was happening is you might have in one home where one person becomes a believer and the other one doesn't. And, the, and, and how do they respond to that? And he's talking about that type of situation where they are both unbelievers and when they get married and one gets saved, one gets converted, and the other one's lost. Paul is not talking here about a Christian who chooses to marry a non-Christian, by the way. Because elsewhere in Scripture, Paul deals with that. And he makes it very clear that as a Christian, as a believer, you should not marry an unbeliever. That's clear in Scripture. So he's talking about the scenario here, and what's happening is these new believers, they've just accepted Christ, and they come to Paul, and they say to Paul, okay, here's the thing, now that I'm saved and I'm married to an unsaved person, do I have the right to divorce him? Man, as a pastor, sometimes we get hard questions, but I can't imagine being a Paul and getting these questions and being like not having scripture to turn to, but uh, he, he had the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. But keep in mind that Paul here had just taught them over the previous chapters that their bodies were members of Christ and that they were sanctuaries of the Holy Spirit. And so there began to be this growing thought that based on that teaching, if you were to remain married to an unbeliever, then that would mean that you constitute a union which was causing it to, defi- to defile your body as a believer. Some were coming and saying, well, if I stay married to this person, they're, they're unsaved. If I stay married to them, it defiles me. So can I divorce them? So Paul begins to address that. And, and we understand here, I want to take a moment and pause, we understand that there are difficulties that arise when you as a believer is, is married to an unbeliever. It's It's obvious. You know, it comes up. Sometimes things are very complicated. Sometimes things are very discouraging. Sometimes things are very frustrating for both parties. In cases uh, where it exists that there's an unequal yoke, as Scripture calls it, a believer with an unbeliever, Paul says that as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain, then the believer is not to seek a divorce. Notice what it says in verse 14. Why? For if the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What is Paul saying in that passage? Is he saying that you know, you, if, you're, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, they automatically become a Christian? No, what he's saying there is that he's counseling them as the, the Christian's present in that, presence in that relationship can be, doesn't always mean it does, but it can be a life-changing event for both spouse and children. What he's saying, and we see this also in Peter, when, when Peter is talking to uh, spouses and he's talking to the wife and he says to the wife, listen, live in such a way that you can be a testimony so that by the way that you live, your husband may turn to Christ. And that's a similar thing what Paul is saying here in this passage. He's saying, stay with that spouse so that by the way that you live, by your holiness, you may uh, have an opportunity to lead them to Christ and your children as well. But Paul goes on in the next verse and he speaks about the poss- a different possibility. Notice what he says in verse 15. This is interesting. He says, but if the unbeliever partner 
separates, let it be so, in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved. Paul then speaks about the possibility of an unbeliever. So you have, you have a Christian married to an uh, unbeliever, and the, the unbeliever says, you know what, I'm done. I'm out of this marriage. He says in that passage, let him go. Uh, let, let, him, let him go. And then he's, he makes a statement that I think is interesting. He says, you're not, you're not bound to them. But I want you to notice here, the divorce must be initiated by the unbeliever. And you're thinking, okay, I'll make life as miserable as possible so they'll initiate that. That's not what God's saying here at all. <laughs> That's not, not the intent here. So we see, first of all, we see the exact command that God said. He said, you know, not to divorce except for the reason we'll talk about in a minute. He says the exceptional couple is if it's a, if it's a marriage where it's a saved and unsaved, and the unsaved says, uh, I'm done, let him go. And the last thing we want to notice is the exception clause. In Matthew chapter 5, our, our passage from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. The only biblical grounds that a divorce has on which to seek a, uh, that, excuse me, that a spouse has on which to seek a divorce is sexual immorality. What does that mean? There's been some debate about that because uh, it's used a couple different ways in a couple different places, but uh, the word sexual immorality comes from the Greek word pornea, which is where we get the English word pornography. And it's the idea to, uh, inclusive of all acts of sexual immorality, uh, and whether it's committed by married or single. And it's the idea of, of, of sexual relationship. It gives that. While divorce is permissible here, we see God, Jesus Christ even says it's permissible for that. While it's permissible on the grounds of sexual morality, it is not required. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that a person must seek a divorce if their spouse is to be found unfaithful. We don't see that. Divorce, in this case, should be considered as a last resort. There's been many times where that's been, you know, it's like a a point of victory. Oh man, they've, they've, uh, they've been unfaithful. That means I have an out. It's not what Scripture is saying. When all other efforts have uh, been made to right the relationship and all other efforts have failed, then and only then may a divorce be sought is what Jesus is saying, what we see in this. And uh, we, we understand that that is the case. We look at this passage and we say, okay, it's heavy stuff. You know, God intended for the relationship to be something that is permanent. We see back in Matthew in chapter 19, it says, man and woman, God gave. God gave this, this um, exception clause, not as a command, but as, uh, as a concession. Now, I find interesting as we look at that passage, and if you'll turn back there for a moment, look back at Matthew again where we were, Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, when he's reiterating, I'm going to make a uh, political statement here if I, if I can. He says in, in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 19, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And I, I want to say this because I think it's, it's important for us to say is when we look at Scripture, we see um, a concession given 
to uh, divorce in the case of um, unfaithfulness. But you know what? As I study Scripture, I see no concession given to same-sex marriages. It's very clear here, so I want to point that out. When we talk about the area of divorce, though, there are many in here in this room who uh, you have been divorced. So what I want to look at for the last few moments here is what is, what, where is there life after divorce? Is there? Is there life? Is it permissible to remarry once a divorce has taken place? What happens to those who divorce and, and remarry unscripturally? Maybe that's the case. You know, these and other questions arise all the time when you talk about the issue of divorce. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, the, divi- the issue of divorce is pretty easy for me to come to. There's a lot of things in Scripture. The issue of remarriage is, is a little harder. It's a harder one to grasp. You know, and it's one that we have to search Scripture. And although the issue of divorce is, is delicate and highly emotional, the issue of remarriage is even more so. An honest look at the Word of God makes it difficult to say that all remarriage is sinful. As a matter of fact, in some cases, remarriage is strongly encouraged, like in the case of widows. The Bible talks about that. And so, I want to take a few moments and just talk about what is life after divorce. Well, Scripture gives you one option. We talked about this. He says, uh, you can remain single. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's Paul talking to the, to the church at Corinth. He says, I wish that all were as myself, as myself am, I myself am. And he goes on, he says later, he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul is saying to them at passage, uh, it's good. In verse 7, he says, it's a gift of God. It's a gift God has given you of, uh, of singleness. And so he says, you know, it's not a bad thing. There's some, there's some debate about Paul and where, where he stood, and, and it's believed that Paul possibly was married at one point. What happened, I don't know. Uh, the only reason I say that is because Paul himself says that he was part of the Sanhedrin, and a marriage was, was typically required for that. But he says here in this passage, he's single. Whatever uh, the situation is, Paul says, hey, it's a gift from God. And he goes on, he says in the verses after that, uh, he says uh, in that passage then, if you, and we already looked at these, if you uh, do come to the point where you find yourself divorced, he says the options are there um, is to remain single or to be reconciled. There's no exception to what he says here. To remarry in a way that is, um, is a unscriptural, or excuse me, to divorce in a way that is unscriptural means to remarry would also be a violation of Scripture. We can remain single if that's the case. The second thing is we can remarry scripturally. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for uh, and marries another commits adultery. Any marriage involving unscriptural divorce person is a sinful marriage. There seems to be three instances in Scripture in which a person can remarry scripturally. First of all, a person can remarry scripturally as the result of the death of a spouse. That seems kind of obvious. There's no debate on that one. The second one is a person can remarry scripturally as a result of a spouse committing an act of sexual immorality. God seems to give a concession for that, and so uh, there seems to be an allowance. uh, But even that's unclear, to be honest. And uh, so that's given there. 
And then thirdly, a person can remarry Scripture as a result of an unbelieving spouse initiating the divorce proceedings. Next thing I want to point out, though, is to receive and grant forgiveness. You say, okay, I don't fit that category. It is clearly and unmistakably understood that wrongful divorce and remarriage, while it is said to be adultery, is not an unforgivable sin. And I I want to be very careful here, and I want to be very gracious here, because many times we're not gracious people. You know, God is gracious to us, and it's very clear that maybe you have come to a point in your life where you went through some hard times, and there was a divorce, there was a remarriage, and maybe it wasn't uh, a a biblical remarriage, and you say, does that mean I'm in sin? No, because uh, God gives forgiveness. Are you thankful for that? I am. It's clearly and unmistakably understood that wrongful divorce and remarriage, while it's said to constitute adultery, if confessed as sin, will be forgiven and forgotten as any other sin. Say, what do you mean by that? Think back in the Bible, the story of the adulterous woman. Remember that? There was this woman that had committed adultery, and what was interesting about that was she had committed adultery, and, and so the religious leaders brought her before Jesus, waiting to see Jesus how, how Jesus was going to respond. Because in the Old Testament, the response would be, let's take her out and stone her. And they come in, and they're all riled up, and they're ready to go, and, and they say, hey, we're, we're, what, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to cast a stone? And And you know the story, if you've read it, where Jesus just quietly subdues the crowd by not saying a word. The Bible tells us he gets down and he starts writing something in the dirt and then he stops and he says this statement. He says, those of you who are without sin cast the first stone. What was his point? Whether it's adultery or whether it's uh, we looked at a few weeks ago, anger, or whether it's we're going to look at some in a few, uh, a few weeks about not keeping our word. What, whatever the sin is, he's saying the point is, is all of us have committed sin. And so for us to be the one that passed judgment is, is not necessary. And then he turns to the woman and he says this, go and don't sin again. You know, divorce... Uh, is not a life sentence of being a sinner. Remarriage is not a life sentence of being a sinner. Divorcees are not second-class citizens, nor are they second-class church members. I have been amazed how many times God has used individuals in our church who, who uh, have gone through the tragedy of divorce and God has used them in great ways to serve God. You have an inability to minister and to serve in ways that others can't. Now the scripture does preclude divorcees from being pastors and deacons, but other than that, uh, they are very much a part of the work of the Lord. There's forgiveness. But just as God can forgive, parties involved must also forgive. So not only should there be receiving of forgiveness, but granting of forgiveness. And as hard as that is, there's many times, and I've, uh, I've dealt with that before when I've counseled someone where they're, they're struggling and they're still holding on to bitterness to, in their first marriage. You've got to forgive. 
We see that throughout Scripture. God says, uh, I, you know, I forgive you, you should forgive others. And the last thing I want to point out is recovering from sorrow. We know that everyone loses when it comes to divorce. There's no winners. Because every divorce is a result of sin, that means that there's going to be sorrow involved. However, God gives healing. And some of you can attest to that. Some of you can attest to the fact of God's healing and God's grace in so many aspects of your life. And, and, and that is something that we, to be, we are to be thankful for. I want to take this back to the, to the very beginning as Jesus did, as we wrap up here. When Jesus uh, stated in this passage, he said, he said to the, the, the effect of, he said, you know, there that we, we, there is no divorce except for sexual immorality. He gives us in Matthew. Remember why he's saying this. Because in Matthew chapter 5, he is dealing with the people and he's trying to get the people to think above the norm. He's trying to get people to excel in their righteousness. And so what was, what was Jesus trying to get people to do? And we see in Matthew chapter 19, he takes them back to the beginning because he's trying to get people to realize that Marriage, the intent that God had for marriage was a permanency uh, and, and a, a lifetime commitment of a man and a woman uh, for completeness. Why? To point to the world, to show the world of the love that Jesus Christ has for his bride, the church. And you know, I might not uh, be able to witness to uh, everyone around me about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I can, by the way that I live and the way, the way that I interact with my wife, show uh, a picture to the world of how much Jesus Christ loves us. Maybe you're here today and you are, you've faced divorce. Um, I probably know that. And I've probably talked to many of you about it. God, God grants forgiveness. God grants restoration. God grants healing. Maybe for, there's some of you in here today and your marriage is struggling. I want you to realize that, uh, make it in your mind that divorce is not what God intended. And I want you to pursue reconciliation because that's what God intended. Maybe there's some of you in here that you don't fit into that category at all. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you're, uh, you're married and your marriage is going well. Uh, continue to pursue that. Make that a part of what you do. If you have any questions, maybe I raise more questions than answers. As I said, there's a more, lot more information we could go through. You know, feel free to email me, talk to me, call me, whatever. I'm here to help. Let's close in prayer.